Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. This is, uh, these are the words of Apostle Paul. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Ah, good stuff. Y'all can grab a seat. We are in Philippians 2. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about being uh, teammates today. And there's something remarkable about watching a great team perform at the highest level. I, I grew up kind of on the Dallas Cowboys. It's been a hard 20 years uh, since then. But, but I remember when they were good. Uh, I remember the Landry years. I remember uh, even the years after Tom Landry and kind of the success that they had in the mid-90s. And uh, how many of you can remember the Cowboys in the mid-90s? Remember the big three? There was Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, and Michael Irvin. Uh, there was the, the giant Larry Allen who moved as well as any big man in history at about 360 pounds, clearing the roadway for Emmett Smith to run. You remember the, the play action pass game? Those of you that are into football, and how they would run it, run it, run it, and then they would fake it, drop back, and look at Jay Novacek running down a seam or Michael Irvin on a curl route. And they just dominated, won three out of four Super Bowls in the mid 90s. And uh, those of us that were football fans just admired the, the near perfection they seemed to run that offense with. Now, maybe you're bored out of your mind right now and you're not interested in football at all. Uh, and you just go, ah, that's great. That's really interesting, Jeff. But what's that have to do with me? Uh, well, let me switch gears. Like, that can also happen in other venues. There's great teams in, in the realm of music. I remember going, uh, even during those same years, we used to go all the time to the symphony. And I remember going to watch and just being amazed at the reality that all of these instruments played in unison and in perfection. And I remember going to see Mahler's second, and if you know that piece at all, it's just this like intense, driven piece of music, and it just builds and builds and builds. And as we were there, I remember there was a guy behind me that, as the music and these instruments kind of kept coming together and pounding away, 
And he just kind of goes, good God, at the end. And I'm thinking his wife just elbowed him hard because he said that out loud. But the, the impact of that moment for him just resonated so much that he had to express something out of that. And it's amazing to think of instruments having that kind of effect on those that are watching. But it's a great team that's working together that brings that about. Now, it's glorious to see a team working to perfection because it's so hard, right? And even coach Little League, uh, you know what it's, what it's like to try to get 11 little kids to understand the playbook and to actually do their role and then to actually perform it on the field on game day. It seems impossible, which is why when you watch a team do it so well, it's remarkable. If you've, uh, any of you had a sixth grader that began to learn an instrument, you know that they don't, they, don't, they don't start out looking like they're ready to play Mahler's second in a symphony in front of an audience. It's more terrifying, to be honest. Sounds like they're killing an animal somewhere when they start playing their instruments the first time. But, but as they work hard and as they come together and as they develop, you see the beauty of a team that comes together in a symphony that has a single piece of music and a single conductor, and they're all working in unison to produce something beautiful for him. So today I want us to talk a little bit about teamwork and the joy of being teammates and the common guys and the common cause of Christ, which is the greatest game that's ever been played. And so what we're going to see is if you want to flourish in life as God intended, you're going to have to see church as something more than a, than a one-hour event on the weekend. You're going to have to see church as something more than a duty to, to suffer through. You're going to see church as something more than people to put up with. But you're going to have to see it as, as a teamwork and a great cause and a great mission that's worthy of your life. So let's look at Philippians 2. As Paul was reading this passage, any of you... Uh, just find it as an interesting passage. It's kind of a strange section to put right in the middle of a book. And so Paul's been writing all this glorious stuff in Philippians 2. He talks about Jesus and how Jesus is the name above all names. It's going to be exalted just as we sang a few minutes ago. And he proclaims all this beautiful theological truth. And then all of a sudden here in the middle of the letter, he stops and starts talking about people's travel schedules and their plans and different things. And it's really odd um, at, at the outset because it's just some personal information about this guy named Timothy and this guy named Epaphroditus and whether they were going to travel home or stay here. And you just think, well, Paul, this seems like a weird place to stop and talk about that. But what we're going to see is that this is really part and parcel to the Christian life. And it lies at the heart of what the Christian life is all about. So in this section in the middle of the letter, there's two reasons, I think, why Paul stops and begins to write here. One is practical and one is spiritual. And so first I want to deal with just the practical. First thing that Paul's doing in the section is just sharing some practical information. He's trying to be clear about the situation he's facing. Uh, you may remember if you've been here that Paul is in prison. He's in prison for his faith, uh, most likely in Rome. And in that situation, uh, the state in that culture did not provide for prisoners. And so family and friends had to show up to provide food, to provide care, to provide for their basic necessities of life. And the Philippians was a church uh, miles away that had actually sent a guy named Epaphroditus across the world to go deliver this, uh, a gift to Paul to help provide for his needs. And so Epaphroditus was an emissary sent by Philip, uh, the people of, in, in a city called Philippi to go and to care for Paul while Paul was in prison. And, and so Paul is explaining to them, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen to me. I don't know uh, what the verdict of my trial is going to be. But he's actually going to send, he, he describes the situation that it, it apparently uh, Epaphroditus got sick. He became ill on the way to deliver this message to Paul. And uh, so ill that he almost died. 
And so Paul is going to receive that gift, and then he's going to send Epaphroditus back home to, to let people know that he's okay. And then Paul says, but Timothy is going to stay with me. So instead of Epaphroditus coming to take care of my needs, Epaphroditus got sick, I'm going to send him home, and Timothy's going to stay here, and he's going to care for my needs. And Paul's going to begin to explain that. Now, why is that important to us? I think one reason I think it's important for us is this book is just not some ivory tower document that just possesses theology and just kind of glorifies and all this stuff that's so heady that it's not very practical. In fact, this is a, a letter. The, the, the book of Philippians is a letter written by a, a group of people very similar to us to a um, prisoner named Paul, who was an apostle. And um, I think it's important to understand that. Because in the real world, people get sick. Um, this book is written to people in the muck and mire of life, and people get sick. Uh, people have bills that need to be paid. People have, uh, have travel issues and problems that, and things that occur along the way. And uh, misunderstandings are normal. Do you notice how many times in these verses that Paul expresses his doubts? And as he says, I don't have anyone like Timothy because everyone else is so self-centered. Uh, can you relate to that? Like you've got a few people in your life you can count on, but everyone else seems like they're focused on their own stuff? Uh, that's similar to the way Paul felt. Uh, Paul... It talks about, he says, I'm, I, you know, if, if, if something were to happen to Epaphroditus, I would experience sorrow upon sorrow. And even feel like when life is hard, that things just keep spiraling in a bad direction. He just goes, man, I'm in prison. I'm already dealing with all the sorrow of not being able to be with my people, not being able to do all my stuff. And now this guy that came here to care for me may, might have died. And that would have been, that would have just been too much for me to handle. And even relate to a life that sometimes feels like it's more than you can handle. I think these are the things that Paul is, uh, is writing about. He's saying, look, with my trial, uh, I don't know how it will go with me. He's uncertain about the future. Do you ever feel uncertain about what lies ahead? About the decisions you make or the way life's going to unfold? I think we all feel that way at different times. And Paul says um, that, that life is sometimes difficult. And I think this letter, it's important for us to say that it's written by real people in a real world. And I think God left us verses like this in the Bible because it's kind of strange in a, in a sacred document to just come across this, this information that's just about their personal lives. But I think the reason why God put those things in this, in this book is that you understand that you're not alone. The, the, the struggles that you face and the doubts that you face and the tensions and the temptations that you face are the normal stuff of life. Life can be hard, and it evokes all kinds of emotions in us. And I think the Bible is very real about that. That's encouraging to me. I hope it is to you too. But you notice it's not just the tough stuff of life that's here. You notice what else is here? Uh, Paul's going to go on, and he talks about hope and joy and honor and sacrifice and mission. And there's a, there's a whole lot of good that happens in the midst of the bad. And there's a whole lot of, of wonderful things that transpire in the middle of all the stuff. And it makes sense that Paul would communicate uh, this practical information. But it's kind of strange that it's right here, but except that I think it also conveys a spiritual truth. So there's a practical side of what Paul's doing. And the reason he puts it in the middle of the letter is because it actually is going to continue the spiritual argument he's been making. So I want us to look at that and kind of see what, it, what spiritual argument Paul's making here. He's going to take two paragraphs in these verses. He takes one to deal with Timothy, and he takes another one to deal with Epaphroditus. And so these two paragraphs are kind of parallel, and he's using them as examples of Christ-like behavior, and he's continuing to build the argument he's built through the whole book. And so if you go back and look just a little bit earlier in Philippians chapter 2, 
Uh, he starts off in 2, 1 through 11. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and so he's going to look at Jesus. He says, if there's anything that we can take away from who Jesus is, that ought to be an encouragement to us. And he's going to tell us what Jesus did, that he didn't grab hold of his position and simply, simply hold, kind of hold that over everyone, but he emptied himself and he became a human and became humble and served all of humanity to the point of death upon a cross. And so then in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning, if this is the way Jesus thought, you should think the same way. So look at Jesus, look what he did, look how he lived, look at the way he thought, look what he was committed to, look at the interests that he poured his life into, and, and be like Jesus. And then he's going to point us to this, these two people, Paul and Timothy. And he says that these guys lived like that as well. Because we're all called to live like Jesus, to exhibit the character of those who live in a manner worthy of the gospel, as it says. As it says in, in the other verses there in uh, verse 5, it says, Do not merely look out to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then in verses 13 through 18, he says that we're not supposed to be grumbling, argumentative people, but we're to shine like lights in a crooked and twisted world. And so there's this progression that he's been building and said, take encouragement from Christ, look to him, think like him, live like him, then you're going to shine like lights in a crooked and twisted generation, and the world's going to be able to look on and see you. Now, what, now what's he going to do here? He says, let me give you an example. I want you to look at Timothy, and I want you to look at Epaphroditus, because they're living examples of someone who's doing that. Do you sometimes need to see Jesus in the flesh? There's one thing, it's, it's one thing to read about Jesus in the Gospels. It's another thing to see a parent who lives like Jesus. It's another thing to see a coworker who in the midst of your world lives like Jesus. Another thing to see someone who attends your small group who lives like Jesus and in close proximity, you get to see what Jesus looks like in the flesh through their example. And that's what Paul's doing is he's going to point to Timothy and Epaphroditus and says, hey, I know what I've called you to is this high call. Let me show you what it looks like fleshed out in the real, real stuff of life and in the muck and mire of hardship. And so he begins to point us in that direction. So verse 19, he talks about Timothy and he says, I hope in the Lord he starts off. And I want to start off here because uh, this is a, a sermon that very much focuses on the good examples of human people who aren't Jesus, but who live like Jesus. And any of you feel overwhelmed at times to think what, that you're called to live like Jesus? I mean, we talked to, you know, when I was growing up, you had like the, not when I was growing up, somewhere in there, you had like the WWJD bracelets where it's like, what would Jesus do? And you're all supposed to do that. And, and that actually comes from a book that was written in like the 1920s that was all about a guy that was sort of, you work out your own salvation, not by grace that flows out of you, but by earning your way, by living as much like Jesus that God looks at you and goes, oh, you're doing so good. But that's an overwhelming, exhausting way to live, isn't it? Because none of us can live like Christ in our, in our flesh. So I think that's why Paul starts off at the very beginning. He says, hope in the Lord. Because you have to understand that, the, that, that everything here is built on, built on the foundation of trusting the Lord Jesus. And if you, start, if you start trying to live like Jesus, apart from faith in Jesus and his grace, you're going to be exhausted and overwhelmed all the, all the days of your life. But here's what Paul says. You notice that his hope is in the Lord Jesus. And we really see this theme throughout. And in 121, he says, for me to live is Christ. I mean, Christ has changed everything in my life. 
And uh, what we're going to look at next week in uh, Philippians 3, he says that, that he is found in Jesus Christ, that although he had all these things and success in life that he could, have, he could have exalted himself, he didn't because he knew that they were all worthless apart from Jesus. So his life was found in Christ. He is going to go on in this passage. He talks about, my hope is in the Lord. My trust is in the Lord. My confidence is in the Lord. His interests are in Jesus. He serves in the gospel. We receive friends in the Lord. And it's this repetitive thing. And he uses this phrase over and over, in the Lord or in Christ or in him or in the gospel. And all those things are, 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 are correlated or parallel phrases to mean that the foundation of my life is that I am identified with Jesus. And I'm, I need you to understand that at the beginning, because this, is the, this isn't just window dressing. This is Paul's theological understanding for everything he's going to call you to. And if you start by working, thinking Christianity is about reforming your behavior, you're going to be exhausted. Yet belief comes before behavior. There's an order to what we do. We trust that Jesus died for our sins and there's grace. Uh, we're going to celebrate Easter next week. Easter's my favorite Sunday of the year. Because uh, on, on Good Friday, we get to celebrate that Christ died. Christ died. Christ, God in the flesh, came to the earth, lived a perfect life amongst us. He didn't come and simply exalt himself, but he came and he poured himself out as a living sacrifice. And then he, he willingly allowed himself to suffer an awful death upon a cross to pay for your sins and for my sins. And it's only through that payment that we have life. He was a substitute. He stood in my place. What I deserved, he said, excuse me, let me set you aside. Let me stand in your place, and I will take that for you. And so he laid down his life upon a cross. It was Good Friday. Saturday, we had a day of silence where all was quiet and all was dark, and everyone wondered what's going to happen. But Sunday came. On Sunday, Jesus punched sin and death in the face, and he stood up and he walked out of that tomb, resurrected, victorious over sin and death, so that nothing could hold him back, which means that when we're identified with him, nothing can hold us back. And as he is exalted above every other name, it says in Philippians 2, we get to be exalted with him, that he came down to us in order to lift us up with him. And we get to live in new life and forever life. And friends, if we get to the rest of this passage and you don't know that, you're going to be exhausted and overwhelmed. Because you can't live a sacrificial life. You can't live with joy in the midst of sorrow. You can't live as one who bears the burdens of others around you. You can't live as one who is a teammate in the greatest cause that may, cause, may ask you to risk your whole life. If you don't start with belief in the love of God and in His grace. So belief is first, then we begin to move towards behavior. So Paul starts, and he starts off talking about hope in the Lord. you see how important that is? So you feel like we can move forward now? You understand grace? You trust in God's love for you? You trusting that it's through Jesus that you have new life and forever life and that you can begin to live in a new way? That's what Paul believed. He said, because of what Jesus did for me, now I want to live for him. And so belief comes first, and then we begin to move in the other direction um, to, to respond to God's love and grace by being obedient to him. And really what that means is that 
um, allows us to live in a way that God's going to bring about flourishing in our lives. So look at what Timothy does. Verse 21, uh, 20 and 21, look at the effect that God's grace has on Timothy's life. Says, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For those uh, other people all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. Paul describes Timothy as not one who's motivated by selfish interests, but one who looks like Jesus because he's concerned about other people. That he doesn't put himself first, but he puts other people first. Jesus didn't put himself first, but he laid down his life in order to bring about our salvation. And because of that, Paul says Timothy does the same thing. Timothy doesn't put himself first. He puts others first and lives for them. And so Paul says, I can trust him. It's, it really points back to the verses. And really, Paul uses some of the same phrases that he used earlier in Philippians 2. And you're going to see that throughout this passage. That Paul goes, Jesus did this. And he goes, oh, look, Timothy's doing this. Jesus lived like this. Oh, look, Epaphroditus is living like this. So Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but look to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see what he did at the beginning of Philippians 2? Jesus lived like this. So if you see Jesus, then have a mind like Jesus and live with humility, not for selfish interests, but for the good of others, considering them as more important than yourself. What's he say here about Timothy? I have no one like him. He's genuinely concerned for your welfare. Other people seek their interests. I seek. He, Timothy seeks Jesus Christ's interests. Now, there's an interesting connection here because Paul kind of does a little play on words here. He says, G, Paul, uh, Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. What was it Philippians 2, 3 to 5 we just read called you to do? Seek the interests of others. Paul, Paul's doing something. He's putting these together. And he's saying, when you seek Jesus' interests, you're going to seek the benefit of other people. When you seek the good of Jesus, you're going to seek the benefit of those around you that need to know Jesus and that need to be loved like Jesus or loved by Christ. So Paul's going to take two, two traits of Timothy he's going to highlight. One is his like-mindedness in, the, in gospel mission. And so he's going to say, I have no one like him who's genuinely concerned for others. He's going to compare him. He says, he's like, he's like a son of his father. Meaning that, that, that if, a, if a son looks like his father and acts like his father, He's got the same mind as his father. He says, Timothy looks and acts and is concerned about the things that I'm concerned about. Other people, though, he says, are self-absorbed. Can you relate? It's not too hard to get in our world and drive around our cities and realize that everyone's uh, completely interested in their own own self. I was driving down the road uh, yesterday, and as I was trying to get over and realize I've got to get over to get to an exit, to go to an event. Um, I'm signaling and I'm signaling and this guy won't let me in, won't let me in. So finally I'm like trying to go in front of him. I'm trying to go behind him and I'm thinking, dude, you know I'm trying to get over. Just let me and he won't let me. And so finally I have to like do one of those like, okay, I'm going to be more aggressive and kind of slowly wedge my way in. And he gave me a little hand signal that told me he wasn't happy with me. (laughs) And I just thought, man, there's a guy who's completely self-interested. He's not interested in helping me get over at all. And he's very offended that I'm trying to get over. And I'm, on, on, this, on the other hand, I'm just trying to get to my exit. And so I'm interested in getting to my exit. And somehow there was this tension that took place. And that is what humanity looks like so many times, isn't it? Two people with divided interests, fighting for their own way and not wanting to get along and figure it out. And yet, um, how well does that work in life? Do you think that guy was happier? Do you think I was happier? Either one of us. There's tension. 
And Paul says it's not the way of flourishing. The way of flourishing is to really look like Jesus. And so he uses the same phrase here that he uses of Christ, that he uses here of Timothy. <clears throat> One guy said this about this text. He says, it's hard to imagine a more certain antidote to any number of struggles that consistently plague the local church other than, uh, than this one, that God's people all be like Timothy in terms of their putting the interest of others as a matter of first importance. And isn't that true? How many of our problems would, would be solved if we just followed this one simple principle, that you saw others as more significant than self, and you put someone else's interest ahead of your own, and you think of how different the world would be? Uh, Paul, it's interesting, he says of Timothy that he was genuinely concerned, that he will be genuinely concerned for your for your affairs, meaning you can count on him. You can count on him to be honest. You can count on him to be authentically caring about you. You can count on him to love you and to sacrifice for you and to be present in your life. We all need people like that, don't we? Here's what to me is interesting. Paul doesn't praise Timothy's preaching. Paul doesn't praise Timothy's intellect. Paul doesn't praise Timothy's book knowledge. He doesn't praise his ingenuity his entrepreneurship, his passion for leadership. What's he pray? What's he praise? He says, I, I want to commend to you this man, Timothy, because he's genuinely going to care for you. Isn't that remarkable? That of all the things Paul could have exalted and lifted up, he lifted up. This man's going to love you. He's going to care about you. He's going to show up. Friends, I, I think more than anything else in our world, and you guys have heard me say this before, I think our world's asking three questions of us. Do you love me? Are you for real? And does any of this work? I think that's what people are looking at the church and they want to know. They're not impressed with how smart we are. They're not impressed with how slick we are. They're not impressed with our ability to navigate all the ins and outs of the world with perfect skill. They want to know is, when I sit down next to you in a restaurant, are you going to love me? Well, you show genuine concern for me. When you sit down across at the cube across from me at the office, are you going to be the kind of person that shows genuine care about me? When you're running around on a, on, a, on a track or a baseball field and they're looking at you students and they're wanting to know, are you the kind of guy, teammate that's going to genuinely care about me, not just how well I hit or how fast I run, but genuinely care about me as a person? I think these are the kinds of questions people ask. And it's what Paul said Timothy does. And it's what this whole letter has been about. Is Paul says, let me show you where real joy is found. Real joy is found in living like Christ when you're not living for self. The road of self is never going to lead you to the road of joy. It's going to be a divergent path. The road of joy is one that looks like Christ, that lives for others. Um, let me tell you a little bit about how this might apply. Uh -huh. Uh, if you're all about self, and I just give you a little tip, your marriage is not going to be very enjoyable. You take two selfish people and put them together, and it's not going to come out happy. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're all about self, your work is not going to be very satisfying. Because all be focused on yourself and whatever good it brings to you. But there's no camaraderie in that. If you're all about yourself, your team isn't going to celebrate your accomplishments because it's all about you. And you're going to miss out on the joy of celebrating with those around you that go, man, this is my brother and we did something together. And I think Christianity calls us to something different. You know, what Paul says about Timothy. He says that he has proven character. Proven character comes from a verb that says to put to the test. 
Meaning he was put to the test and proven to be, to be worthy through that. But he's not just saying that Paul's a decent character, or that Timothy's a decent character and a good dude. He's saying that he's demonstrated himself to be committed to the gospel and to living out, living like Christ. So you can count on him because he's a son who follows Paul, and Paul follows Jesus. We're going to see in Philippians 4, Paul's going to say, follow my example. He said, I'm going to run after Jesus, and you run after me, and then you grab someone else and help them run after you, and then teach them to grab someone else, and they run after you, he's going to say in 2 Timothy. This is, what, this is what Christianity is all about. So Philippians knew from past example that Paul, uh, that Timothy was trustworthy. He'd proven it to them. Uh, but he's going to continue to move, uh, move kind of down this, uh, this path, and he, he walks out Timothy's life. So the two things you saw in Timothy's life are, and this is a guy who thinks like Paul and thinks like Jesus. This is a guy who loves and cares about other people, right? So let's go to, let's go to the, the next paragraph, Epaphroditus, verse 25. We're going to look at this, uh, this second guy, Epaphroditus. Anyone pregnant out there looking for a baby name? Um, Epaphroditus is available. Um, you, can, you can grab hold of that if you want to. Uh, I think if this guy was my friend, he'd had a nickname by about day two. Like pretty soon, this guy would have had to become Epap or, or Frobro. Or, like he'd have had to be something else, but I would not have called him. A, you can't have a five-syllable name and be like a close, close friend without getting a nickname really quickly. Uh, but in verse 25, what you see is he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And he starts to run out all this relational language. Do you notice all the relationship language that's here, friendship language? He says that there's a, there's a deep friendship because they were concerned. Epaphroditus was concerned about the people back home, um, that they would be overjoyed to see him whenever he was able to get there. It says that he longed for him. And in fact, in verse and then it talks about his distress. That's a word that means basically there's this mental anxiety or stress that's pressed upon him because of the situation that he's in, because of his illness and everything that happened. He's longing to go back home and let them know that he's okay. Um, any of you have been separated from loved ones for a long period of time and just know that desire to be close, to know what's going on? I've got you know, a kid in Scotland right now, and I can't fathom what it would be like to have a kid going overseas before there was FaceTime and, tel- and, and cell phones. Like, it's so much easier for us because I can at least ring him up and catch a phone and have a conversation with him. I can't imagine what it was like in the days when you could maybe write a letter and have months for it to travel over there and then get a letter in response and not have any idea what's going on. This is what pa- Epaphroditus was dealing with. Epaphroditus couldn't send a picture. He couldn't send a text with like three images going, hey, I'm all happy and good now. I'm not sick anymore. Don't worry about me. So apparently what has happened is Epaphroditus coming from Philippi and showing up here had gotten, gotten so ill that he almost died. And apparently, according to this, there, there was likely someone that went back and let the, Philippi, uh, the Philippian church know that Epaphroditus was sick. So they, they had probably heard back from someone else that he was sick, but it had been weeks at a time, and they, they didn't know now if he lived or died. And so they weren't sure what happened. And Epaphroditus is looking, going, and I, want, I long to be with them and want them to know what's going on in my life, and that I'm okay. And, and the Philippians um, probably didn't know, they may not have known how bad off his health was, or maybe they knew how bad it was, but they didn't know that it had been resolved. So there's this difficulty that's taking place there, and Paul is connecting that to, um, to Epaphroditus and to his character. One, he says that Epaphroditus likely got sick trying to serve Paul. 
And so it's likely on his journey. In fact, he's going to say it, it's so connected that his getting sick had to do with his suffering for the sake of Christ. That it was in the mission of Christ. It's for a Christian purpose that Epaphroditus was even here, and he almost lost his life for it. But God had mercy on him. In fact, when it talks about God had mercy on him, we don't know for sure, but some people think that may have been not just a he happened to get better and God was kind to allow that to happen, but it may have actually been more of a healing situation that happened, that God had mercy on him and healed him from the sickness. Uh, We don't really know, uh, but some of the language there kind of makes you think about that. But notice Paul's language. He says if he would have died, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow because there's a relational connection to this man Epaphroditus. Here we also see Paul's vulnerability, don't we? Do you ever feel like you look at Scripture and you look at the Word that you're supposed to be invincible? That you're supposed to be this kind of larger-than-life thing? I think sometimes Christians portray that. They kind of portray this victorious life that we have it all together and we have the truth and we know everything. And because God loves us, we're, we're sort of bulletproof. And you just don't see that kind of thing in Paul. Paul looks and he says, man, there was great distress because of this. If this would have happened, my heart would have broken. It would have been sorrow upon sorrow. He said, he's looking and says, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to, or I wasn't sure how this was going to play out, but God had mercy on him, and he's grateful for that. So you see some of this vulnerability of Paul, that, um, that Paul, Paul's feeling vulnerable in this whole situation. Friends, joy is not the opposite of sorrow. Our faith is strong enough to give us joy in the midst of sorrow. But, but, but it doesn't mean we don't encounter hardship. In fact, it says that Epaph risked his life to fill up uh, the vacancy in, in what they were not able to do. So what, what he's trying to say there and what that means is that he says that, that Epaphroditus was a minister to me, meaning you guys were so far away, you couldn't care for my needs, but you sent him. And so he stepped into that place and filled up what you couldn't do, and he showed up to care for my needs on your behalf. And not only that, he says he's a model of one who risked his life. He says, unto death. That phrase, unto death, points back to Philippians 2, the passage we looked at just a little bit ago, 1 to 11, where it says that Christ um, was obedient to the point of death. He's saying here, Epaphroditus was obedient to the point of almost reaching death, meaning he sacrificed like Jesus did for me. So Paul's going to give us five descriptions, uh, and I want to run through these quickly. Five descriptions of Epaphroditus. First, he says, he's my brother. My brother, is, that's the most common Christian relational connection that you have is this, that of family. So this is, this guy was to me, this teammate was to me a brother. Then he says he was my co-worker. Uh, that's the most common language for someone that serves alongside Paul is he's my co-laborer or co-worker. He's a partner in the gospel. He sacrifices along with me for the sake of the, the goal that we are committed to, of making Christ known. Thirdly, he says he's my fellow soldier. Uh, this uh, probably was trying to say that this guy was is being sent home like a soldier wounded in battle. That he came over here and engaged in the great the great mission and the great battle of life alongside me, and he got sick, and so I'm sending him home for rest and recovery now because he was he was a fellow soldier alongside me. He says he was your messenger to me. He, it's the same word there is is that's used of an apostle that he was he was an emissary sent. To bring, to bring good, good news to me. He says he was your minister to my needs. And he calls him a priest. He says he, he committed like a priestly act in serving my needs on your behalf. 
So he was a substitute that offered a living sacrifice to me uh, to care for my needs on your behalf. So those five things are what Paul, he commends as he's sending Epaphroditus home. Think about this. Uh, Epaphroditus is going to carry a letter home, and he's going to give it to the, the, the church at Philippi, and they're going to read it out loud. And there, as they're reading out loud or out loud, the Apostle Paul, who started that church, is going to say, this man, Epaphroditus, whom you sent to care for my needs, I'm sending back to you. I'm sending back to you, but you need to know he's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. He's the one that came from you to bring goodness to me. And he's the one that ministered to my needs on your behalf. Therefore, what? He should be honored. You should honor him as someone someone who gave his life for the work of Christ. Friends, do you realize that everything you do in the Christian life is for the work of Christ? If you've ever given a dollar to the church, it's for the sake of Christ. If you've ever sing a song amongst us, it's for the sake of Christ. If you ever go out and stack a chair in this room, it's for the sake of Christ. If you uh, hung a sign out in the foyer, it's for the sake of Christ. If you loved on a kid in our kids' ministry, it's for the sake of Christ. If you go and offer water to the poor, it's for the sake of Christ. When you offer an encouraging word or a smile to someone or give them a hug, it's for the sake of Christ. Everything we do is, is for the sake of Christ. And Paul says that everything Epaphroditus did in, in coming to care for me was for the work of Christ. And so in this passage, what he's done is he's gone back to Philippians 2. And he says, Timothy and Epaphroditus are living examples of what happened, or of what I described of Jesus in Philippians 2. It said that, um, that they are tangible evidence that we can do this. Friends, do you ever need examples in the flesh? of what God's done for you? And we do, don't we? Paul says, I told you about Jesus. Let me tell you about two guys that look like Jesus so you have a little more inkling of what it is, what it is to follow them. And he points to Timothy and he points to Epaphroditus. Let me tell you how that ought to encourage you today. Do you ever get overwhelmed and think you can't do the things this word's calling you to do? Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples that you can they're tangible examples that you can learn to honor Christ in the way in which you live, and that God doesn't call you to live in a way that he's not willing to empower you to go and do. And so we get to trust that. So here's what I, here's what I want to do to close. I want us to look at, I want to just point out two things. One, we are teammates in the common cause of Christ. And do you realize that we are teammates just as Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus were teammates? That we're all serving in the same mission. And I know we're not all wearing the same jersey today, but we all wear the same name. We're all, we all wear the name of Christ. We're all Christians. And so in that, we are in the Lord together, and we serve under his grace and under his care together. In fact, if you look at scriptures, church is never something we do together. Do you know, on every one of Paul's missionary journeys, he never goes by himself. He always goes with someone else. Church is something we do together. The, the cause of Christ is something we live together. The mission of Christ is something we do with others. In fact, Ephesians 4 says it this way. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Um, so the leaders of the church, those five people it lists up at the beginning, says Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. God, Christ gave leaders to the church for what purpose? What's it say? To equip the saints. Um, Who are the saints in this passage? That's all the believers. So anyone that's that's in the Lord, 
anyone that's put their faith in the Lord, anyone that's a believer in Christ, is, is here called a saint. And so God gave leaders to the church to do what? To equip you to do the work of the ministry. So if you understand that, who does the work of the ministry? You can say it out loud. The saints. And who are the saints? You are. So who are the ministers of the church? You are. Right? This is, uh, this is what Paul is trying to help us, I think, understand in this. Um, how is it that the church grows when the church does the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ? In fact, it goes on a little later. It says that we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church grows when everyone pitches in. And one of the problems we've seen in the church in the West is that we've been, we've been given an image that isn't very accurate of what the scriptures were intended to be. We've been made to think the church is an event we attend one hour a week, and the ministers are on the stage, and the people out there fund the ministry. But that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that God sends leaders to the church to equip the saints to go to the ministry because the ministry doesn't happen one hour a week. The ministry happens everywhere we go, in every avenue, in every street, in every conversation, in every relationship that we have. You're called to be the ministers that go and to serve the body or serve the world in the name of Christ. So we're teammates. I want to close with this. In verse 29, it says something else about the way we are to treat teammates. It says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. We receive him in the name of Christ with great joy. Do you receive your teammates with joy? Do you see them as those that you're receiving in the Lord who should bring you, bring you joy? And he commands someone, he says, honor such men. It's interesting for Epaphroditus, he's told, told him that he needs to honor Epaphroditus. But he also says, honor such men, meaning Epaphroditus has one, but he's in a larger group of people that should be honored. And they need to be lifted up. And, care, and, and really what he's saying is, as Christ was lifted up, and he talks about it in, in Philippians 2, 1 and, or 10 and 11, he's saying, so also Epaphroditus, as he looks like Christ, should be lifted up. He should be honored as well. And there's a difference between those who trust Christ and, and see their life really transformed by him. And so it says, honor such men. Uh, Romans 12 says it this way. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't you love that? Uh, it's become one of my favorite verses. The longer I've lived as a follower of Christ, the more I've seen how relational this book is and how much the community of, of saints matters in the way in which we live. We cannot live the Christian life alone. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We do this together. We do this as teammates. We do this as family. And family outdoes one another in showing honor in practicing brotherly affection and, and love for one another. So here's what I want to do. I want to just try to give a picture to this and um, kind of as we end. Nan, would you stand up for me? You didn't know this was going to happen today. Nan celebrating, my wife celebrating a milestone birthday today. And go ahead and stand up. Um, and I, I want to honor Nan because she has been a pastor's wife for a long time. And we've been 
brother, sister in Christ. She's been my co-laborer. She's been my fellow soldier. She's been one who has sent as a messenger to bring the good news to others, and one who's sent to minister to the needs of others. And it's been a joy to serve by your side for all these years. And it's not easy. There's been ups and downs. There's days we wanted to throw in the towel, days we wanted to quit, days we wish we'd have chosen a different direction, days you looked at me and said, can you still go back to med school? And yet we've been faithful, and you've been faithfully by my side to continue to serve Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. Um, stay standing, though. Uh, if I get Chris and Chase and Audra and Tammy all to stand up, our team here, um, I told our team this last week, I mean, we have worked so hard over the last couple of months, pulling off the events and the things that are going on, getting ready for Easter, some of the changes that have happened here, getting ready for the new building. And we're tired. And we pay some of these people for certain hours, and I promise you they're working at least double lightly the hours that we're paying them for. And I'm grateful for you all. I'm honored to get to be co-laborers and, and fellow soldiers alongside you. Um, if, you're, uh, if Emory and Jesse and Maddie would stand up as well, you all are in it, whether you chose it or not, and we get to serve side by side. Um, if our elders, if Cameron and David would stand up, um, you men have, are faithful and, are, and bring great joy to me to get to serve alongside you. And, and I'm honored to get to do it. And it's a life-giving thing for me to get to serve with you all. Um, for all those who, I'm going to give a different category. Um, if you've ever served here in any capacity, if you've ever given to the mission of this church, if you've ever offered a smile to those sitting around you, if you've ever sung alongside us to encourage us by your voice and by your presence, if you've ever come to the communion table to, to announce your faith in Jesus as one of us, if you've ever been a part of this family at all, you're a teammate. And would you stand with us also? Look around you. You're not all wearing a jersey, but you all wear the name of Christ, which is even more important. And we're a team. And so we live as those who offer brotherly affection, as family. And we're those who outdo one another in showing honor because of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would give us a picture of the church that is real people living real lives in the midst of muck and mire sometimes, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of falling down and getting back up. Father, may we rest in your grace. Father, I pray for everyone here that they might know the love of Christ, that they might feel connected to this body, as family, as teammates, and that together we might serve, that we might serve sacrificially, we might serve joyfully for the sake of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.